Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's on page 976 of the Black Bibles on the side. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us, with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. My name is Ryan Phelps. I serve Grace Point as pastor. We have been in the book of Ephesians for the last couple of months, and we are making our way, and we are, and we are in an amazing passage today. I hope you heard that and felt that this morning. Uh, We need God's help to see everything that we need to see. It's a lot to take in, to understand, and so let's pray before we get to it. Oh God, I am so grateful to you that we have your word. We don't just have a few words, we have your magnified words, your comprehensive word, the word that is for life. It is life for us, that if we would listen and believe, we would have great joy great peace, great comfort. And Lord God, we need that this season. We are coming in with lots of baggage, with lots of things that need attending to, psychological problems, problems at work, problems in our hearts. But we know that you are merciful. You are a good God and you love us. And you long for us to see what you have in your holy word. So do that now by the work of the Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I lived down in Florida for about two years. You would ask someone, hey, are you religious? And they would respond back, almost every person, yeah, I'm saved. Everyone in the South is saved. If you've ever been down in the South, everyone's a Christian, especially Dave Ramsey. What does it mean to be saved? For them, it meant something different than it does up here. I bet that when people, a lot of people up here hear the word saved, they go, here we go. Here we go. They're talking about being saved again. What are you even saved from? Paul is going to talk about being saved this morning. We're jumping right into it this morning because there's too much to get to. I don't want to take too too much of your time. We need to jump right into this. Paul is going to unpack in 10 glorious, beautiful verses what it means 
to be saved. And we're going to tackle it a little bit differently this morning. We're going to kind of jump around. We're going to start with the first three verses, but then we're going to jump to the last three verses, and then we'll end in the middle four. And here are the points when we get to work. These are the points. Saved from death. Saved to life. Saved by sacrifice. One, saved from death. Hopefully you have a Bible out. If you don't, there's some over here, I think, or maybe not. Oh, there's a lot gone there. If you have a Bible, open it up. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. This is how it reads. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And that's a lot there. That's a lot there. But he helps us. He's really describing man's sinfulness, right? And he helps us by saying... Very, the very beginning, something stark, a stark reality, kind of a morbid reality. You are dead. And you were once dead in your trespasses. What does that mean? What does it mean for him to say that we are dead? Because right after it, he says, you're dead in your trespasses in, once, in, in which you once walked. Now, we're not talking about the TV show Walking Dead here. We're talking about real people. If you're dead... You don't walk around. You're not alive. You can't do anything. So, so what's, the, what's, the, what's the key here? What is he trying to say to us? He's talking about a limiting. A severe spiritual limiting. Just like physical death is limiting in all the ways you can think of. You don't walk around. You don't breathe. You have no brain function. Spiritual death also limits us, but it limits us spiritually. We are trapped in, hemmed in, only able to live in a certain way. And so another way to think about it is by the word enslavement. Our sin is enslaving to us. The spiritually dead are enslaved. They are enslaved to think in one way, to walk in one way, behave in one way. So you can see that there. Do you see the word following? It happens a couple times. You follow the prince of the power of the air. That word in the Greek, it, it doesn't just mean to follow something like you're following a parade. No, it means something that you must follow. Something that you are mastered by, controlled by. You are enslaved. Now, what are we enslaved to? That's really the question, right? What are we enslaved to? How is our spiritual death limiting to us? Well, he mentions a few things here. We're going to talk about that in a second, but I I want to jump right to the third one because if the third one doesn't exist, then the first two don't even matter. But the third one, it is a major problem. What is the root of sin? What is the main issue? It is us. The main reason we are enslaved is because you might say we are curved in. Verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
kind. Apart from Christ, what does it say? We live in the passions of our flesh. I love the contrast. We're dead, we're walking, and we're alive at some level, but we are alive only in the passions of our flesh. We are dead, but deadness is living under the power and the control of our very natures. That is what Christianity has taught from the very beginning. Our nature is to live in the passion of our flesh. And you can imagine that word is so important, the word flesh. It doesn't mean physical body. It doesn't mean your skin. It is referring to self-centered human nature. Flesh here, when Paul says flesh, is referring to self-centered human nature. The root of sin is our self-centeredness. This is what drives us. What is at the root of our issues? We are profoundly and almost incurably self-centered. We think that Augustine first coined this term. I'm going to give you some, some Latin this morning. I hope you're excited about that. The Latin this morning is incurvitus in se. Hear that again. Incurvitus in se. And it means to be curved inward on oneself. To be curved in one on oneself. Augustine said that is sin. Selfishness, self-centeredness, pride, conceit. What our sin reveals is that we are curved in. Self-centered. Consciously. Unconsciously. Trapped, enslaved in the belief that what? We must look out for our own interests above everything else. Above everyone else. We live literally for number one. Always. Now listen, that can lead to very bad things. It can lead to what we would call bad sins. Dictators, of course, they enslave people selfishly. Criminals, why do they steal? Because they are selfish. They want something for themselves. They're not thinking about anyone else. We lie selfishly. Think about that. I think that we lie most of the time thinking we're doing something that's necessary, right? We're lying for good reason. 99.999% of the time we are lying selfishly. We are lying for our self, not to help anyone else, not to help some cause. We are lying to make sure our identities stay clean and pure. Now you can think of a million other things that our selfishness leads to. When we harshly punish our kids. When we blur the boundaries of integrity at work. Our curved inness makes us step outside of our marriages, our relationships. Paul is saying that at the root of sin, it is selfishness. It is pride, conceit, incurvitus, in se. Now that's the stuff. It leads to the bad stuff. But we need to take this one step further. This is so important. Our sinful nature, our inner curvedness, our selfishness, it is so pervasive. It is so pervasive that it it drives us not just to do the bad things, but good things also. Selfishness, it turns out, can make us very moral. Now, I did not believe this at first. This comes from a teaching that Tim Keller gave, but listen, it is absolutely biblical. When Jesus came into the earth and, and to, the, to the earth and he starts dealing with the Pharisees, what is his main goal with them? It is to show them, to expose this reality in their life. 
Yes, they were following the law. They were better at anyone else at following the law, at doing good things. But he showed over and over again they were doing it for themselves, for their own selfish gain. They were serving the Lord on the outside, but serving themselves on the inside. Keller says that it's like having a little computer at the center of our hearts, at our wills. And it is constantly working 24-7, 365 days a year. And it is telling us one thing, making us ask one thing. What will this do for me? What is, going, is this going to do for me? Yes, will this lie help me? But also, will this good deed help me? Will going to church or giving an encouragement or serving a soup kitchen or letting my wife have a night out or giving someone a promotion at work. Is that going to help me in the end? Enslaved to our sinful natures, we are incapable of serving God or anyone else for their sake, for their joy. Tim Keller says it this way, listen to him. Sin determines how you relate to God and other people only in such a way and only to the degree that it furthers your agenda. That things are going your way, that God or other people you're relating to are doing the things the way you think they should be done. As long as it gives you the self-image you want to have or you want to, have the, or you want to project. As soon as it becomes something that's very costly, as soon as a relationship with God or other people is very costly, what happens? He says, we're out of it. We step out. Why? Because even when it looks like we're serving God and other people, we are actually serving ourselves. And he finishes it by saying, that is how insidious sin is. Paul says, apart from Christ, apart from God, it is impossible to turn this stuff off. It is impossible to turn this off. You will see and experience everything. You will feel everything according to this impulse, this drive, incurvitus in say. Now he opens it up, right? He says it's not just this. There are other dimensions to our sin. It is exasperated by two other things, the world and the devil. I'm sure you've heard this before, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Look at verse 2. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So take the first one, following the course of the world. We do as the world tells us to do. And what is the world telling us to do? In curvatus in say. It is telling us to look out for ourselves. It is not go serve your brother, go serve your sister. It is kill. Be killed. It is not teaching it is better to give than to receive. It is teaching give so that you can get. You might call it functional karma. Functional karma. And karma is just selfishness. Shakespeare has this. From the, very, from the 16th century, Shakespeare, in, in Richard III, King Richard, he's praying and he prays this. Richard loves Richard. That is, I am I. It's very identity. What about Gavin DeGraw? Anyone know who that is? The pop singer? This is way further and he's not Shakespeare. (laughs) 
But he wrote this line, I don't want to be anything other than what I have been trying to be lately. All I have to do is think of me and I have peace of mind. That is very revealing. I appreciate the honesty, but it is very revealing. The world is reinforcing our selfishness. And it makes it so easy, doesn't it? Following the world feels good. It always feels right. Paul says, he, Paul says, you follow the course of the world. And how I imagine it, like a river flowing down a mountain. It is so easy. It just goes. We are like that. We follow the world wherever it leads. It is the least restrictive path. Remember that. Following the world is not hard at all apart from Christ. And that's the world. What about the devil? Now, it is easy to serve him too, and that is downright scary. It is easy to follow him, trust him, live like him. And listen, this is so revealing for us. Apart from Christ, without God in our lives, we are following, as Paul says, the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan himself. And what is the devil except conceit personified? What is the devil except for selfish gain personified? When we give into our selfishness, when we let it happen, our self-centered beliefs, movements, our walking, he likes that. We are doing exactly what he wants us to do. Even if they're good things, even if we're doing the right things, as long as we are out for number one and we are serving our ends, we are serving him. Pride was what sprung up in the devil's heart when he looked at God and said, You are not meant to be on the throne. I am meant to be on the throne. That is what he used to pull Adam and Eve into the darkness. The same pride. If you would eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. In a sense, he's saying, be not made into the image of God, but into mine. That is terrifying. But I think you can now kind of hear the issue with all of this. Following our flesh, following the world, following the devil, to be completely self-centered is truly to dethrone God, to push him out, to live apart from him. For you to follow your self-centered heart, for you to follow the world, for you to follow the devil, you must take God off of the throne and replace him with yourself. David Powelson puts this way. He's a Christian counselor. He said, sin is the pervasive inner bentness. The inner bentness that erases God from his universe and skews all our perceptions, purposes, and choices. Is that your heart? Is that where you are? Are you trying to take God off his throne? Put him out of the picture? Now, Paul tells us this why. Just to tell us some bad news? No, he wants us to know the good news. But he has to reinforce this. He has to show us how bad it really is. To be totally curved in, totally self-centered, it is not life. It is not life. It is death. C.S. Lewis, when he paints the picture of hell in the book, The Great Divorce, he's actually not, he doesn't use Uh, Lots of physical punishment or fire and brimstone. He doesn't paint it that way. 
In his mind, hell is just the end of our selfishness. Hell in his mind is taking your selfishness and multiplying it times a million, times a billion, times infinity. Enslaved forever to yourself. Now that is terrifying. So how do creatures that are bent inwards, that are curved inwards, how do creatures who are totally selfish turn this around? That's a good question. We're not going to get to it yet. We are saved from death. We're going to jump to the next verses, verses 8 through 10, and see how we are saved for life. This is what we are saved to. We are saved for life. Now, you could easily say that God saves us, and that's good enough. He saves us from hell, but that is not the only thing. He is saving us to something, and you see it embedded all over the place here. It is nothing less than our reversal of selfishness, the reversal of curvedness of our selfishness. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I just want you to see a couple things here. What are we saved to first? We are saved to humility. We are saved to humility. Verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation, friends, when it comes to us, it makes us humble. It makes us humble. Now, what's the opposite of humility? It's arrogance, right? The opposite of humility is arrogance. We are arrogant apart from Christ. We believe that we are, deep down, the greatest. The greatest. And even when we are struggling with our identity, we are fighting to get it. We are fighting to say, we are good people. And especially in comparison to others, right? We are always coming out better. We're not only, we're not that bad, we're really good. Salvation comes to us by Jesus Christ. By grace. By grace, you are not saved by your moral goodness. That is at the root, the foundation of our salvation. You are not saved by your many, many works. You are saved by grace through faith. Now, what we've been seeing the last many months, we've been talking about this a lot. Our motto here at Grace Point is all of grace for all of life. What we've been saying is that as followers of Jesus, we must admit that there is nothing we can do to earn the love of God in Christ. There is nothing in us, nothing we can accomplish. Nothing that we can do to make him love us or save us. He must do it by his grace. That's the definition of grace. To give someone something they do not deserve and cannot earn. And there is nothing as humbling as grace when we truly understand it. And that is the whole point, isn't it? The end of verse 9, what does it say? That it, the grace comes to us by the gift of God so that we cannot boast. So that we cannot boast. And we hear that and we go, that's a negative thing. No, it is the gift of God. We do not boast in our morals or looks or money or intelligence. We are free. We no longer cling to boasting. We live for boasting in Christ. 
The freest, happiest people I have ever met. The freest, happiest people I have ever met. The most internally satisfied and peaceful people are the ones who are truly humble. They do not think of themselves highly at all. They see themselves through the eyes of Jesus, lost, but love. Can you imagine not having to defend yourself at every turn? Can you imagine not getting embarrassed or angry when a bad job performance review comes in? Can you imagine not overreacting when someone unjustly criticizes you or says something that just is not okay? That is life. We are saved to humility. Saved to humility. We're also saved to faith. We're also saved to faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your undoing. It is the gift of God. Listen, that is a total reversal that we now have faith. Faith in something that can secure us and keep us good. Because we have self-centered faith before, right? We have faith. We always have had faith. But it has always been in ourselves and in our circumstances, and that is no way to live. People without faith in Christ go through life unsure of themselves, unsure of what's going to happen next. They place all their hope in their own abilities and their circumstances. And when those things fall apart, which they always do, you are lost. You are despair. It is an anxiety-producing faith. But Paul comes in and he says that Jesus Christ, by his mercy, out of the love of God, you are given faith. We are strengthened in our faith. In the Lord of hosts, the great King and Father, when you are saved, you are given something to hold on to. Something that will not let you go. You cannot count on your circumstances. You cannot count on your abilities. But you can count on Christ and God gives that to you. That is life. You are saved by faith. Saved by humility. Saved by faith. You are saved for gratitude. Saved for humility and faith and gratitude. Verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of of God. That's what Paul's laying out for us. Listen, it's Christmas time. We can get this. Grace is a gift. It is the greatest of gifts. Gratitude. G.K. Chesterton once said that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Friends, are you grateful this holiday season? Are you grateful for what you have? And I mean an overwhelming gratefulness no matter what is going on in your life because we are the richest people in the world because of what we have in Jesus. Now listen, I am the first to admit I live to complain. I live to complain about my circumstances. No matter how well things are going, it does not matter. I can find the bad in it. I can find a way to complain about it. And I know a lot of people are like that way, and, it's, and it kills us. It is killing to us. God comes in through Jesus, and he saves us, and he saves us to true gratitude. And it is truly gratitude because it comes on the other side of grace. Joyful gratitude comes only when we are given something that we desperately need, but do not at all deserve or can earn. Paul's point is when the salvation comes to us, it is truly 
a gift? Have you ever been given that? Given a gift that you needed so desperately, but you could not earn it. You could not afford it. And it was handed to you. Think about that feeling. Think about what that feels like. That greatest of joy. That is what we have to an untold measure in Jesus Christ. That is life. You are saved to gratitude. Last thing, works. Humility, faith, gratitude. You are saved to good works. Look at the last verse. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now let's ask it negatively. What are works apart from Christ? Well, Paul's point, I think, is that they're always selfish. Even the best things that we do, serving our family, serving the poor, serving our church, it will be done selfishly when God is not on the throne and you are. God saves us, though, what? To good works. He saves us to unselfish works. Salvation brings us to a place where we don't serve God to get something from Him. We don't serve others to get some financial gain or some interpersonal gain. We do it simply because it is the right thing to do. Because it is going to make someone happy. Because it is going to bring you true, faithful, godly joy. To serve unselfishly. To serve without thinking of the cost and the benefit. That is life. And God has been preparing this from before eternity. This is what he has been preparing us for. Good works. We are saved to life. The last point this morning is this. We are saved by sacrifice. Saved by sacrifice. So we are saved from death. We're saved to life, and now we're finding the bridge here. We are saved by sacrifice. We have seen the darkness of sin. We are dead in our self-centeredness, but we have also seen the other side of salvation. It is a, a life overflowing with humility and faith and gratitude and good work. So what is the bridge? What gaps this huge chasm? What makes dead people Alive, well, you must be reordered spiritually. We must have our backwardness, our curved inness, our selfishness totally reversed. And I think you get it that the answer cannot be us. It cannot be us. The answer cannot be to stop being dead. It can't be to stop being selfish. That is impossible. And so we need the life of another to come down on us. We need God in the gospel. Friends, if you're going to listen to anything, this is what you must hear this morning. We are saved through the sacrifice of God. But first, we are saved by God himself, his very character, who he is. God has told us that we are dead. It's not a good picture. It's a sad picture. It's kind of a morbid picture. And then verse 4 comes rushing in. What does it say? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Just listen to that. Feel that. Believe that. We are saved because God is rich in mercy and love. And he is, even though we were trying to kick him off the throne. He loves us. 
He meets us. He comes to us. He provides for us richly with love and mercy. Even though we were rejecting him at every turn, at every choice. People who literally followed the devil and he showed them grace. We are saved by God's character. We are saved by resurrection. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. What does it say? Made us alive together with Christ. That is what we need. That is what we need. Not a self-help class. We don't need to go walk the Appalachian Trail for six months to find ourselves. We need total soul resurrection. And we got that when we were made alive with Jesus Christ. We were dead And dead people must be made alive and they can only be made alive by some external force, power and that came in Jesus Christ and we were made to live with him in the newness of creation. You know this verse well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are saved to resurrection. Now there's a third thing here. It says that we are saved... By being seated with him in heaven. We're not just saved by the mercy of God or by a resurrection, but we are saved by being seated with him. Listen to verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us and Christ Jesus. Now listen, we are seated in heaven, Paul says. Now, unless someone knows something that I don't, we are not there literally. We're not in heaven right now. So how can Paul say that we are seated with him? Well, he must mean that it's a seat that we own now. That we have that seat, you might say legally, by legal rights. The seat is ours. And the seat means that we have everything that Jesus has. Everything that he has has been given to us. We are not just saved and redeemed. We were told that we will live with him forever. Forever. We will be seated next to him. It's, it almost makes me blush a little bit to think about that. How could we be given something so amazing to exist in joy and peace and harmony for an eternity? But it is true. It is true. Jesus gave us our place in his kingdom next to his very throne. And he did it while we were trying to kick him off. Friends, we must hear this morning that we are so lost apart from God. We are so self-consumed, self-centered, so curved in, and we cannot save ourselves. And so we must say one last thing. We've been kind of dancing around this. The thing that underpins our resurrection, the thing that secures our place in heaven, the move that flowed from God's rich character is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are saved through the very opposite of our selfishness. John Stott gives this amazing encapsulation of the gospel. He says that the essence of sin is human beings substituting themselves for God. They are substituting themselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself 
for us. While we try to substitute ourselves for God, Jesus sacrificially substituted himself for us on the cross, the bloody, bloody cross. He thought not of his own life, but the lives of his beloved. He did not go to the cross thinking of some earthly gain he would get. He was going to die. He would have everything stripped from him. He would go to the cross thinking of us. That is salvation. To be one purchased, loved, saved by God in Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death we should have died for us, for our salvation. We are in the Christmas season right now. And every time you see that little manger somewhere, a children's manger, or you'll see it later today in our pageant. When you see that manger, you'll be reminded of Jesus Christ, that precious baby boy, the representation for us. As we were trying to climb up to heaven, he was coming down into the darkness for us. As we tried to take his place on the throne, he gave up his throne for us. As we tried to avoid at all costs sacrificing our life for others, he sacrificed himself, his blood, his body, his dignity, even his relationship with his Father for us. And so we must look to him. Our selfishness is still there. For those of you who do believe, for those of you who have been saved, our selfishness lingers, doesn't it? You still want to go back to the life of being curved in, but in the power of the gospel, by the Spirit's great love and work, you are being turned out. Trust him. For those of you who do not yet believe, for those of you who have never heard this concept of sin and this amazing gift of salvation, I say to you this morning, trust Christ in faith. Lean out into him. Fall into his peace and mercy and he will save you and he will bring you all of the things that we have talked about this morning. Friends, let us be that church. Let us be that people. May we be turned out for his glory, not turned in. Turned out for his glory and for the sake of others. For humility and faith and gratitude and good works. This is what you were made for. Let's pray. God, we now go to communion where we will take physically what you have given us spiritually. May it be a reminder that weds the two together. Oh, we need that, God. We can't just have the intellectual side of things. We must have your spirit work to make us thrive and live and remember and believe. God, we struggle. We suffer. Parents struggle. People who go to work every day struggle. People who are living in marriages and relationships struggle. We are so selfish. But you have promised that you are changing us. You have promised the reversal. We know that Jesus Christ came by his sacrifice, by his substitute, and so we now know that you will work in us. Continue to do that, O God, by grace, by your rich mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.